Section 18 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 7 On the Races of Man, Part 2. The question whether mankind consists of one or several species has of late years been much discussed by anthropologists who are divided into the two schools of monogenists and polygenists these who do not admit the principle of evolution must look at species as separate creations or in some manner as distinct entities and they must decide what forms of man they will consider as species by the analogy of the method commonly pursued in ranking other organic beings as species. But it is a hopeless endeavour to decide this point until some definition of the term species is generally accepted, and the definition must not include an indeterminate element such as an act of creation. We might as well attempt without any definition to decide whether a certain number of houses should be called a village, town, or city. We have a practical illustration of the difficulty in the never-ending doubts whether many closely allied mammals, birds, insects, and plants, which represent each other respectively in North America and Europe, should be ranked as species or geographical races. And the like holds true of the productions of many islands situated at some little distance from the nearest continent. Those naturalists, on the other hand, who admit the principle of evolution, and this is now admitted by the majority of rising men, will feel no doubt that all the races of men are descended from a single primitive stock, whether or not they may think fit to designate the races as distinct species, for the sake of expressing their amount of difference. With our domestic animals, the question whether the various races have arisen from one or more species is somewhat different. Although it may be admitted that all the races, as well as all the natural species, within the same genus, have sprung from the same primitive stock, yet it is a fit subject for discussion, whether all the domestic races of the dog, for instance, have acquired their present amount of difference since some one species was first domesticated by man, or whether they owe some of their characters to inheritance from distinct species, which had already been differentiated in a state of nature. With man no such question can arise, for he cannot be said to have been domesticated at any particular period. During an early stage in the divergence of the races of man from a common stock, the differences between the races and their number must have been small. Consequently, as far as their distinguishing characters are concerned, they then had less claim to rank as distinct species than the existing so-called races. Nevertheless, so arbitrary is the term of species, that such early races would perhaps have been ranked by some naturalists as distinct species, if their differences, although extremely slight, had been more constant than they are at present, and had not graduated into each other. It is, however, possible, though far from probable, that the early progenitors of a man might formerly have diverged much in character, 
until they became more unlike each other than any now existing races. But that, subsequently as suggested by Fogt, they converged in character. When man selects the offspring of two distinct species for the same object, he sometimes induces a considerable amount of convergence, as far as general appearance is concerned. This is the case, as shown by von Natusius. With the improved breeds of the pig, which are descended from two distinct species, and in a less marked manner with the improved breeds of cattle, a great anatomist, Gratiolet, maintains that the anthropomorphous apes do not form a natural subgroup, but that the orang is a highly developed gibbon or semnopithecus, the chimpanzee a highly developed macacus, and the gorilla a highly developed mandrill. If this conclusion, which rests almost exclusively on brain characters, be admitted, we should have a case of convergence, at least in external characters, for the anthropomorphous apes are certainly more like each other in many points than they are to other apes. All analogical resemblances, as of a whale to a fish, may indeed be said to be cases of convergence, but this term has never been applied to superficial and adaptive resemblances. It would, however, be extremely rash to attribute a convergence close similarity of character in many points of structure amongst the modified descendants of widely distinct beings. The form of a crystal is determined solely by the molecular forces, and it is not surprising that dissimilar substances should sometimes assume the same form, but with organic beings we should bear in mind that the form of each depends of an infinity of complex relations, namely on variations, due to causes far too intricate to be followed. On the nature of the variations preserved, these depending on the physical conditions, and still more on the surrounding organisms, which compete with each, and lastly on inheritance, in itself a fluctuating element, from innumerable progenitors, all of which have had their forms determined through equally complex relations. It appears incredible that the modified descendants of two organisms, if these differed from each other in a marked manner, should ever afterwards converge so closely as to lead to a near approach to identity throughout their whole organization. In the case of the convergent races of pigs above referred to, Evidence of their descent from two primitive stocks is, according to von Natusius, still plainly retained in certain bones of their skulls. If the races of man had descended, as is supposed by some naturalists, from two or more species, which differed from each other as much, or nearly as much, as does the orang from the gorilla, it can hardly be doubted that marked differences in the structure of certain bones should still be discoverable in man, as he now exists. Although the existing races of man differ in many respects, as in color, hair, shape of skull, proportions of the body, etc., yet if their whole structure be taken into consideration, they are found to resemble each other closely in a multitude of points. Many of these are of so unimportant or of so singular a nature, 
that it is extremely improbable that they should have been independently acquired by aboriginally distinct species or races. The same remark holds good with equal or greater force with respect to the numerous points of mental similarity between the most distinct races of man. The American Aborigines, Negroes, and Europeans are as different from each other in mind as any three races that can be named. Yet I was incessantly struck, whilst living with the Fujians on board the Beagle, with the many little traits of character, showing how similar their minds were to ours, and so it was with a full-blooded Negro with whom I happened once to be intimate. He who will read Mr. Tyler's and Sir G. Lubbock's interesting works can hardly fail to be deeply impressed with the close similarity between the men of all races in tastes, dispositions, and habits. This is shown by the pleasure which they all take in dancing, rude music, acting, painting, tattooing, and otherwise decorating themselves, in their mutual comprehension of gesture language, by the same expression in their features, and by the same inarticulate cries when excited by the same emotions. This similarity, or rather identity, is striking, when contrasted with the different expressions and cries made by distinct species of monkeys. There is good evidence that the art of shooting with bows and arrows has not been handed down from any common progenitor of mankind. Yet, as Westroop and Nilsson have remarked, the stone arrowheads, brought from the most distant parts of the world, and manufactured at the most remote periods, are almost identical, and this fact can only be accounted for by the various races having similar inventive or mental powers. The same observation has been made by archaeologists, with respect to certain widely prevailed ornaments, such as zigzags, etc., and with respect to various simple beliefs and customs, such as the burying of the dead under megalithic structures. I remember observing in South America that there, as in so many other parts of the world, men have generally chosen the summits of lofty hills to throw up piles of stones, either as a record of some remarkable event, or for burying their dead. Now when naturalists observe a close agreement in numerous small details of habits, tastes, and dispositions between two or more domestic races, or between nearly allied natural forms, they use this fact as an argument that they are descended from a common progenitor, who was thus endowed, and consequently that all should be classed under the same species. The same argument may be applied with much force to the races of man. As it is improbable that the numerous and unimportant points of resemblance between the several races of man in bodily structure and mental faculties, I do not here refer to similar customs, should all have been independently acquired, they must have been inherited from progenitors who had these same characters. We thus gain some insight into the early state of man, before he had spread step by step over the face of the earth. The spreading of man to regions widely separated by the sea no doubt preceded any great amount of divergence of character in the several races, for otherwise we should sometimes meet with the same race in distant continents, 
and this is never the case. Sir H. Lubbock, after comparing the arts now practised by savages in all parts of the world, specifies those which man could not have known when he first wandered from his original birthplace, for if once learned they would never have been forgotten. He thus shows that the spear, which is but a development of the knife-point, and the club, which is but a long hammer, are the only things left. He admits, however, that the art of making fire probably had been already discovered, for it is common to all the races now existing, and was known to the ancient cave inhabitants of Europe. Perhaps the art of making rude canoes or rafts was likewise known, but as man existed at a remote epoch, when the land in many places stood at a very different level to what it does now, he would have been able, without the aid of canoes, to have spread widely. Sir H. Lubbock further remarks how improbable it is that our earliest ancestors could have counted as high as ten, considering that so many races now in existence cannot get beyond four. Nevertheless, at this early period, the intellectual and social faculties of man could hardly have been inferior, in any extreme degree, to those possessed at present by the lowest savages. Otherwise, primeval man could not have been so eminently successful in the struggle for life, as proved by his early and wide diffusion. From the fundamental differences between certain languages, some philologists have inferred that when man first became widely diffused, he was not a speaking animal. But it may be suspected that languages, far less perfect than any now spoken, aided by gestures, might have been used, and yet have left no traces on subsequent and more highly developed tongues. Without the use of same language, however imperfect, it appears doubtful whether man's intellect could have risen to the standard implied by his dominant position at an early period. Whether primeval man, when he possessed but few arts, and those of the rudest kind, and when his power of language was extremely imperfect, would have deserved to be called man, must depend on the definition which we employ. In a series of forms graduating insensibly from some ape-like creature to man as he now exists, it would be impossible to fix on any definite point where the term man ought to be used. But this is a matter of very little importance. So again, it is almost a matter of indifference whether the so-called races of man are thus designated, or are ranked as species or subspecies. But the latter term appears the more appropriate. Finally, we may conclude that when the principle of evolution is generally accepted, as it surely will be before long, the dispute between the monogenists and the polygenists will die a silent and unobserved death. One other question ought not to be passed over without notice, namely, whether, as is sometimes assumed, each subspecies or race of man has sprung from a single pair of progenitors. With our domestic animals a new race can readily be formed by carefully matching the varying offsprings from a single pair, or even from a single individual possessing some new character. But most of our races have been formed, not intentionally from a selected pair, but unconsciously 
by the preservation of many individuals which have varied, however slightly, in some useful or desired manner. If in one country stronger and heavier horses, and in another country lighter and fleeter ones, were habitually preferred, we may feel sure that two distinct sub-breeds would be produced in the course of time, without any one pair having been separated and bred from in either country. Many races have been thus formed, and their manner of formation is closely analogous to that of natural species. We know also that the horses taken to the Falkland Islands have, during successive generations, become smaller and weaker, whilst those which have run wild on the Pampas have acquired larger and coarser heads, and such changes are manifestly due not to any one pair, but to all the individuals having been subjected to the same conditions, aided perhaps by the principle of reversion. The new sub-breeds in such cases are not descended from any single pair, but from many individuals, which have varied in different degrees, but in the same general manner. And we may conclude that the races of men have been similarly produced, the modifications being either the direct result of exposure to different conditions, or the indirect result of some form of selection. But to this latter subject we shall presently return. On the Extinction of the Races of Man The partial or complete extinction of many races and sub-races of man is historically known. Humboldt saw in South America a parrot, which was the sole living creature that could speak a word of the language of a lost tribe. Ancient monuments and stone implements found in all parts of the world, about which no tradition has been preserved by the present inhabitants, indicate much extinction. Some small and broken tribes, remnants of former races, still survive in isolated and generally mountainous districts. In Europe, the ancient races were all, according to Schaffhausen, lower in the scale than the rudest living savages. They must therefore have differed, to a certain extent, from any existing race. The remains described by Professor Broca from Les Aises, though they unfortunately appear to have belonged to a single family, indicate a race with a most singular combination of low or simious and of high characteristics. This race is entirely different from any other, ancient or modern, that we have heard of. It differed, therefore, from the quaternary race of the caverns of Belgium. Man can long resist conditions which appear extremely unfavorable for his existence. He has long lived in the extreme regions of the north, with no wood for his canoes or implements, and with only blubber as fuel, and melted snow as drink. In the southern extremity of America, the Fugians survive without the protection of clothes, or of any building worthy to be called a hole. In South Africa, the Aborigines wander over arid plains, where dangerous beasts abound. Man can withstand the deadly influence of the Terai, at the foot of the Himalay, and the pestilential shores of tropical Africa. Extinction follows chiefly from the competition of tribe with tribe, and race with race. Various checks are always in action, serving to keep down the number of each savage tribe, 
such as periodical famines, nomadic habits, and the consequent death of infants, prolonged suckling, wars, accidents, sickness, licentiousness, the stealing of women, infanticide, and especially lessened fertility. If any one of these checks increases in power, even slightly, the tribe was thus affected tends to decrease. And when, of two adjoining tribes, one becomes less numerous and less powerful than the other, the contest is soon settled by war, slaughter, cannibalism, slavery, and absorption. Even when a weaker tribe is not thus abruptly swept away, if it once begins to decrease, it generally goes on decreasing until it becomes extinct. When civilized nations come into contact with barbarians, the struggle is short, except where a deadly climate gives its aid to the native race. Of the causes which lead to the victory of civilized nations, some are plain and simple, others complex and obscure. We can see that the cultivation of the land will be fatal in many ways to savages, for they cannot, or will not, change their habits. New diseases and vices have in some cases proved highly destructive, and it appears that a new disease often causes much death, until those who are most susceptible to its destructive influence are gradually weeded out. And so it may be, with the evil effects from spirituous liquors, as well as with the unconquerably strong taste for them shown by so many savages. It further appears, mysterious as is the fact, that the first meeting of distinct and separated people generates disease. Mr. Sprout, who in Vancouver Island closely attended to the subject of extinction, believed that changed habits of life, consequent on the advent of Europeans, induces much ill health. He lays also great stress on the apparently trifling cause that the natives become bewildered and dull by the new life around them. They lose the motives for exertion and get no new ones in their place. The grade of their civilization seems to be a most important element in the success of competing nations. A few centuries ago, Europe feared the inroads of eastern barbarians. Now any such fear would be ridiculous. It is a more curious fact, as Mr. Bagehot has remarked, that savages did not formerly waste away before the classical nations, as they now do before modern civilized nations. Had they done so, the old moralists would have mused over the event, but there is no lament in any writer of that period over the perishing barbarians. The most potent of all the causes of extinction appears in many cases to be lessened fertility and ill health, especially amongst the children, arising from changed conditions of life, notwithstanding that the new conditions may not be injurious in themselves. I am much indebted to Mr. H. H. Howard for having called my attention to this subject, and for having given me information respecting it. I have collected the following cases. When Tasmania was first colonized, the natives were roughly estimated by some at 7,000, and by others at 20,000. Their number was soon greatly reduced, chiefly by fighting with the English and with each other. After the famous hunt by all the colonists, when the remaining natives delivered themselves up to the government, they consisted only of one hundred and twenty individuals, 
who were, in 1832, transported to Flinders Island. This island, situated between Tasmania and Australia, is forty miles long, and from twelve to eighteen miles broad. It seems healthy, and the natives were well treated. Nevertheless, they suffered greatly in health. In 1834 they consisted of forty-seven adult males, forty-eight adult females, and sixteen children, or in all of one hundred and eleven souls. In 1835 only one hundred were left, as they continued rapidly to decrease, and as they themselves thought that they should not perish so quickly elsewhere, they were removed in 1847 to Oyster Co. in the southern part of Tasmania. They then consisted, December the 20th, 1847, of fourteen men, twenty-two women, and ten children. But the change of sight did no good, disease and death still pursued them, and in 1864 one man, who died in 1869, and three elderly women alone survived. The infertility of the woman is even a more remarkable fact than the liability of all to ill health and death. At the time when only nine women were left at Oyster Co., they told Mr. Bonwick that only two had ever borne children, and these two had together produced only three children. With respect to the cause of this extraordinary state of things, Dr. Story remarks that death followed the attempts to civilize the natives. If left to themselves, to roam as they were wont and undisturbed, they would have reared more children, and there would have been less mortality. Another careful observer of the natives, Mr. Davis, remarks, The births have been few and the deaths numerous. This may have been in a great measure owing to their change of living and food, but more so to their banishment from the mainland of Van Diemen's land and consequent depression of spirits. Similar facts have been observed in two widely different parts of Australia. The celebrated explorer, Mr. Gregory, told Mr. Bonwick that in Queensland the want of reproduction was being already felt with the blacks, even in the most recently settled parts, and that decay would set in. Of thirteen aborigines from Sharks Bay, who visited Murchison River, twelve died of consumption within three months. The decrease of the Maoris of New Zealand has been carefully investigated by Mr. Fenton, in an admirable report, from which all the following statements, with one exception, are taken. The decrease in number since 1830 is admitted by everyone, including the natives themselves, and is still steadily progressing. Although it has hitherto been found impossible to take an actual census of the natives, their numbers were carefully estimated by residents in many districts. The result seems trustworthy, and shows that during the fourteen years previous to 1858, the decrease was 19.42%. Some of the tribes thus carefully examined lived about a hundred miles apart, some of the coast, some inland, and their means of subsistence and habits differed to a certain extent. The total number in 1858 was believed to be 53,700, and in 1872, after a second interval of fourteen years, another census was taken, and the number is given as only 36,359, showing a decrease of 
0.29%. Mr. Fenton, after showing in detail the insufficiency of the various causes, usually assigned in explanation of this extraordinary decrease, such as new diseases, flagellacy of the movement, drunkenness, wars, etc., concludes on weighty grounds that it depends chiefly on the unproductiveness of the woman and on the extraordinary mortality of the young children. In proof of this he shows that in 1844 there was one non-adult for every 2.57 adults, whereas in 1858 there was only one non-adult for every 3.27 adults. The mortality of the adults is also great, he adduces as a further cause of the decrease the inequality of the sexes, for fewer females are born than males. To this latter point, depending perhaps on a widely distinct cause, I shall return in a future chapter. Mr. Fenton contrasts with astonishment the decrease in New Zealand with the increase in Ireland, countries not very dissimilar in climate, and where the inhabitants now follow nearly similar habits. The Maoris themselves attribute their decadence, in some measure, to the introduction of new food and clothing, and the attendant change of habits. And it will be seen, when we consider the influence of changed conditions on fertility, that they are probably right. The diminution began between the years of 1830 and 1840, and Mr. Fenton shows that about 1830 the art of manufacturing putrid corn, maize, by long steeping in water, was discovered and largely practiced, and this proves that the change of habits was beginning amongst the natives, even when New Zealand was only thinly inhabited by Europeans. When I visited the Bay of Islands in 1835, the dress and food of the inhabitants had already been much modified. They raised potatoes, maize, and other agricultural produce, and exchanged them for English manufactured goods and tobacco. End of section 18